0: Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schram's library in Ashland, Ohio. Welcome, and thanks for joining us on today's episode. We're gonna be talking today about What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, by Frederick Douglass. And to join us in that conversation is our old friend, Professor Lucas Morrell. Lucas is the head of the Politics Department at Washington and Lee University, in Lexington, Virginia, and the author of a number of important books on Abraham Lincoln and on American political thought, and teaches courses for Ashbrook on Lincoln, on Frederick Douglass, and other important American figures. Lucas, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Jeff. Let, let me start by um, addressing the question of the historical context of this document, and particularly let's start with the question, this document, why is it important? Look. A lot of people have probably not read this document. It may have been famous in its day, but maybe not in our day. Tell us in your mind, why is it so important for us as Americans to understand and appreciate this
1: work by Frederick Douglass? Um, The best way I can... The answer to that is by reminding people who know something about Frederick Douglass that Frederick Douglass wasn't always enamored with uh, the country of his birth. We've got to remind ourselves that he was born a slave in Maryland and had to escape, I mean, physically decide to break state law to flee to his freedom. And of course, it wouldn't be a freedom he would be secure in until he was legally manumitted. And that didn't happen for a, a good number of years. Uh, so it's important to know that Frederick Douglass didn't always love America because America, as he put it, didn't love him. Uh, he gave a pretty important speech in 1847 when he returned to the United States from the United Kingdom after he was legally manumitted or freed, 150 pounds sterling, which about 700 something bucks back then. Um, When he returned, uh, he gave this speech called uh, The Right to Criticize American Institutions. And he had a lot to criticize because he thought both uh, the country's laws and its most important cultural influence, which was the church, uh, both recognized and endorsed slavery. And he said at that time, what country have I? This country does not know me as a citizen, doesn't know me as a man. Now we fast forward five years later, What has happened? And the way I describe this is we have a man, Frederick Douglass, the making of an American. Somehow he learned from the country that had enslaved him that there were principles as well as institutions and practices that he believed leaned towards freedom, as he put it. And this speech is the announcement It's his major announcement that he has changed his mind about America. And he explains what it is he likes, loves about the country now, and yet, of course, the yawning gap that exists between its noblest ideals and um, its practices.
0: So this speech is important, not just for understanding Frederick Douglass and his change of mind, which is really important in the 19th century for the course of American history, but also because it illustrates how one important person can come to understand the American idea as an idea of freedom and the kind of the process and the arguments through which a a mind is changed to really come to appreciate, understand and appreciate America.
1: Exactly. What's astonishing, of course, is Douglas didn't just see the things that were wrong with this country. He actually discovered that the country itself was equipped with the answers to its own problems. And, and that's what makes him and this speech so important for us uh, to think about.
0: Tell me a little bit about the context of this speech. Uh, okay. It's 1852. Tell us a little bit um, about Frederick Douglass. We've probably all heard the name, but we might not know a lot about him, about him, the man, and this speech. What's the context that that it's given in?
1: All right. Well, the immediate context is uh, that he is a former slave who has had his uh, freedom purchased for him by others. He said he wouldn't donate, he wouldn't give one red cent for his own freedom, what God had already given him, but according to the constitution and the laws, he would receive that freedom uh, as others uh, paid for it according to the law's requirements. Uh, So the immediate context is you've got a guy who the worst thing this country could do to you, he experienced, and now is uh, telling that story. He told it most famously, in the first of, yes, three autobiographies, uh, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave written by himself. That is the complete title, right? So uh, people, in fact, when he was giving speeches on the abolition circuit, uh, they said, yeah, this. there's no way that you could have been a former slave because you speak the King's English as it were too well. And so in part, he published his story uh, in 1845 and in part as a way to explain his past and in fact had to give details, which actually made him an outlaw because he had to explain how he got away and that made him uh, a fugitive. And so he had to flee the country for a couple of years between 1845, the publication of the autobiography, and until he was manumitted legally and that's when he returned two years later. So that's the context in terms of his own personal story. The immediate context legally is 1850. This speech is delivered on July 5th, 1852, but it's just two years after the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 has been revised in a very significant way as part of the 1850 compromise measures. And it is the most notorious element of those compromise measures because uh, it, it does not allow the accused fugitive slave to speak on his own behalf in a trial it doesn't give him benefit of counsel. And in fact, it pays the, uh, the judge who is presiding over the trial twice what it would pay him if he announces a verdict of guilty. He gets paid $10 if he says, yes, that's the man. He is an escaped slave. And only $5 if he says this is trumped up. Uh, we've got to let him go. Wow.
0: So this is, a, this is a law, obviously, that Frederick Douglass, both as a freedman but also as an abolitionist, someone speaking out against slavery, he's obviously really going to strongly dislike this law and particularly this part of the law. And he's yeah. giving a speech now called, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? What's the context of the speech itself?
1: Well, it's a speech being delivered in now his hometown of Rochester, New York. Uh, The Rochester Ladies Sewing Society uh, invited him to give this speech, but it's principally an abolition uh, audience that's listening to this in New York. And I I would hasten to remind us that just because it's in New York, which is pretty close to Canada, so it was uh, definitely on the Underground Railroad Circuit, just because it's in New York in the far north, that doesn't mean that everybody thought slavery was wrong. Uh, And so uh, there he did face throughout New England and the New York area uh, hostile, um, uh, you know, hecklers and people actually threw stuff or attempted to lynch him. So it's primarily an abolition audience, but he did face hostility in the north from people who didn't like black people and people who didn't care one whit about whether slavery continued or not. So, uh, yeah, so he's speaking uh, at the at the behest of abolitionists. But as, as we'll get into this speech in a bit, we'll see that he doesn't just have, he's not just preaching to the choir. He doesn't just give friendly words to friends.
0: What's the situation of the country in 1852, especially with respect to slavery? Uh,
1: the, the situation uh, I think can be, uh, we can glean it from the fact that Abraham Lincoln, between 1849 and 1853, it basically ducks out of politics and devotes himself full-time to his law practice. He's got a toe still in the political waters, uh, but we don't hear one complaint from Lincoln in that period of time since he left Congress after his, his sole single term as a, a, as a representative from Illinois until he comes back with the passage of the infamous Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. And to me, that shows that Lincoln at least, and those like Lincoln, Uh, believe that the compromise measures of 1850 have pretty much settled down for now the agitation and the division that had been stirred up over the question of what's the future of slavery in this country now that we have this massive new addition to the country's territory with the success in the Mexican-American War. So
0: it looks like for people like Lincoln, at least, um, the slavery issue has died down some.
1: Yeah, I think uh, to, uh, generally speaking, yes, that, that it has, it seems like it has calmed matters. Everybody, nobody got everything they wanted, but the free states, if you will, and the slave states, if you will, uh, got enough out of that, that for example, states like South Carolina and others that had met in Chattanooga, Tennessee in 1850 to contemplate secession. Yes, a decade before It happens for real, right? starting in December of 1860 after Lincoln's election. Uh, A decade before that, people weren't just talking in newspapers, they actually assembled from about five states in Tennessee to discuss whether they should succeed precisely because uh, of their concerns over um, uh, um, Henry Clay's uh, original omnibus bill that produced the compromise uh, measures later passed uh, by the maneuvering of Stephen Douglas. So we've got, we've got sections of the country. What it appears to be a
0: time of quiet, what you're saying is we've got sections of the country and movements within the country. The pro-slavery forces are uh, growing stronger or more strident. You've got the abolitionists of which Douglas is a part and they refuse to be silent. And they in many ways are, are growing or at least trying to strengthen themselves. And this is the decade, of course, before the Civil War. Take us to the the document itself then, because some people might think the issue of slavery has quieted down. Frederick Douglass doesn't want it to quiet down.
1: Exactly. And so it's not just Frederick Douglass, of course. There are uh, many other abolitionists like Wendell Phillips, Garrett Smith, uh, of course, the most famous abolitionist, William Lloyd Garrison, the editor of The Liberator. Uh, uh, But I have to uh, Add here that abolitionists, uh, uh, the, the types who believed that Congress did have authority immediately to get rid of slavery, even where it already existed, and Lincoln, of course, did not believe that, and most uh, uh, Whigs who were uh, against slavery didn't believe that either. They just wanted to prevent slavery from expanding into the territories. Um, You have to. It's hard for us to get our minds around this today because we think abolition is so obvious, and it is. All men are created equal, right? You can't tell them what to do without asking their permission. Government by consent of the governed. Uh, But abolitionists at this time were actually seen as a fringe, fanatical, uh, subversive element of society because a good number of them, like William Lloyd Garrison, uh, uh, did not believe in the constitutional compromises. One of the mottos on his uh, the masthead of the Liberator was no union with slaveholders. They thought that their hands were bloodied um, uh, and tainted as a result of having to cooperate with you, uh, cooperate with uh, southern slaveholders. For example, returning their escaped slaves, Garrison said, "Let our erring sisters go." He didn't think that we should maintain a union where we had to make such a monumental concession. That was a you know a heaven daring agreement, as he called the Constitution. Right, and a, 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 what is it? an agreement with hell, a uh, covenant with death, uh, and synagogue of Satan. By the way, he got all those phrases from the Bible. So <laughs> that was his uh, uh, very peculiar and idiosyncratic reading of it. At, at, at any rate, but the conclusion is true, right? All men are created equal. Uh, but the abolitionists were, were considered a fringe element. And so, as you say, even though, uh, as, as shall we say, the polite society, middle-class America, Thought, all right, compromise measures, we're all good, okay, okay, okay. The Southern ultras, what they called the fire eaters, those who thought slavery should be legal everywhere, and their opponents, uh, whether immediatists or gradualists among the abolitionists, neither of them was going to quiet down. Neither of them was satisfied with the compromise measures. And Frederick Douglass is just one example in this signature speech, I think his greatest speech. In this signature speech, he it has taken the opportunity to tell us what he thinks is good about this country, but he spends the lion's share of the speech then saying, uh, I don't just talk to hear myself speak. Uh, I'm here for action. I'm, uh, I'm here for, uh, for change uh, and for reform. Let's go to the speech then. What does he say? You said
0: before that we see here, this is his announcement of his break in many ways <clears throat> with the thinking of famous abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison, who, you, who, as you said, thought that the Constitution was evil because it compromised with slavery, that the Union was evil because it compromised with slavery, and we ought to be absolutely uncompromising. That's William Lloyd Garrison. And he has, in some ways, a negative view of the American founders for making these compromises in the Constitution with slavery. What's Frederick Douglass's view in this speech of the people he calls great men, the signers of the Declaration of Independence.
1: Yeah, unlike uh, William Lloyd Garrison, who with Douglas agrees that the Declaration of Independence is a great document, uh, a, a glorious document, precisely because it lays out human equality, uh, inalienable rights of all human beings, government by consent. Uh, he was a pacifist, so he didn't really like that part about the right of revolution, but we'll just leave that to the side. Uh, Those major principles, both Garrison and his protege for a while, uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, they endorsed that fully and thought and believed in the common sense reading of the document as something that is universal, transcendent, applies to all men everywhere for all time. Uh, What's different here is that Douglass talks a lot about those principles, what he called uh, eternal principles, saving principles. He talks a lot about both the principles and the men and generation that produced it, and a good number of whom, of course, were slaveholding men, he talks about them in almost entirely uh, in praiseworthy ways. He sets up his critique later, as well as his support of the Constitution, which he calls later a glorious liberty document. He sets it up by having his audience contemplate what he saw as valuable about their past, What he saw as constructive and productive uh, and progressive, uh, if if you will, as we say today, uh, not just to pat, hey, let's all pat ourselves on the back now and go eat our hot dogs and shoot off firecrackers, firecrackers, he does that to set up the ways in which he thinks the country in the present is falling short.
0: So let's talk about his views of these men of the past. What are some of the ways that he praises our American founders?
1: He he praises them for being uh, courageous. He praises them for being uh, noble-minded. He praises them for not being content with life as it was. He praises them uh, for all of the forward steps that they took at great cost in order to do the right thing. Uh, for, For Frederick Douglass, he said, nothing was settled with them that wasn't right. And, and you can see that, huh, those characteristics, he's going to later say, where do we find those today? He believes that they have been lost. You know, in, in his critique, he's going to say, you guys here who celebrate this uh, 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 holiday, you say, we have Washington to our father. But he's essentially explaining to them, you don't look a thing like your dad, as it were. You don't look a thing like the founders, because even though and he only mentions this once, uh, they were slaveholders. They were not content to remain a slaveholding society. They produced, uh, they announced principles and produced institutions that they expected would get rid of that contradiction to those truths.
0: And doesn't he even note that George Washington himself freed his slaves?
1: Yes, the only time in the speech that I can recall, he even mentions that the founders owned slaves. He studiously avoids that. He wants us, as it were, to cast our public gaze towards the things he thinks can equip the current generation to move the ball forward. So what does he say of Washington? Washington could not die till he had broken the chain of his slaves. And so he reminds the reader, he reminds his audience that yes, Washington was a slaveholder, but he could not rest in peace, if you will. Yes, that was a deliberate pun, uh, until he freed those slaves that he had legal authority over in his will, and he knew that will would be public. The most detailed portion of Washington's will dealt with how his slaves would be emancipated.
0: Uh, So he wants to say, in 1852, it seems like a peaceful time. It seems like a quiet time. It seems like we've, we've um, settled this issue and we can go on quietly and peacefully with our lives. He says, In that, if that's our spirit, we don't have the spirit of the American founders. I, I, here's, I love this line where he says, they, the American founders, were peacemen, but they preferred revolution to peaceful submission to bondage. Yes. We, so he's sort of saying, that's the past. These people were courageous. They believed in principles of justice and they articulated those. They were courageous in acting on those in public. And even some of those who held slaves like Washington were courageous in living up to those principles, even at cost of their own personal interests for the sake of doing what was right. That's the past. That's our glorious past as the way he puts it. What about his discussion of the present? It's yeah. not so cheerful.
1: Right. The, the great pivot, in my opinion, of, of this speech is this, fa- uh, this line. He says, we have to do with the past, what he's been talking about all this time, only as we can make it useful to the present and to the future. Uh, that's, in fact, the context uh, within which he discusses Washington. And then he comes out with both barrels uh, blaring. He says, fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? Would to God, both for your sakes and ours, that an affirmative answer could be truthfully returned to these questions, he concludes, I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. So to, to summarize, he, he introduces the color line. Because remember, in 1852, Douglas is a free man. And yet, because of three to four million who look like him, Black men, women, and children on American soil, not all of them, but most of them are enslaved. He is their voice. He wants it known that there is a good number of Americans who are not um, uh, free on July 4th, don't celebrate that holiday because the truths of that document haven't been secured for them in practice.
0: So what to the slave of the, is the 4th of July? If the slave looks back at our founding, it looks like a time of great promise, the 4th of July. It should be a promise of freedom. It should be a promise of emancipation. It should be a promise of being able to govern yourself. But the present reality is a harsh denial of those principles or a harsh failure to live up to those principles.
1: Exactly. He says that this holiday, like no other day of the year, makes it so obvious what it is that the country is failing to do to live up to the ideals and uh, the actions of the founding generation.
0: Who in the present isn't living up to those principles?
1: Well, (laughs) uh, clearly in 1852, it is Americans south of the Mason-Dixon line who have no problem with and in fact in law and constitution are enshrining uh, uh, the practice of uh, chattel slavery. But it is also men of the North because Douglas in 1852 is, is uh, no fool. He doesn't think that this speech is going to be uh, published in the South. The newspapers are censored in the South. And in fact, there are laws in certain states to prevent anything that remotely sounds like stirring up a slave revolt. So anything that speaks of human equality, so in certain places you had to be careful even if you read the declaration out loud, if someone would suspect that you were trying to stir up uh, what they called servile insurrection. So preachers even had to be careful uh, of passages in the Bible, old and new, that would suggest that the enslaved did not deserve their enslavement. And so Uh, Douglass' speech, I mean, he is not simply deriding Southerners, in fact. Um, He's not preaching to the choir. He's condemning the choir, if you will, in certain respects, because they are not doing enough to use their political power. And this is where he departs from Garrison because Garrison did not believe that you could use any kind of force, whether violent or legal force, like the force of law with sanction and punishment, um, Douglas believed that the Constitution could be interpreted to uh, ban slavery, not just from the territories, but also from the states where it already existed. And that was a way in which he departed actually from Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln did not believe that. Uh, Whigs did not believe that. Uh, but Douglass thought, you know, if you in the North think you can pat yourself on the back because you don't own slaves, he asked them, well, do you cooperate when a posse a posse comitatus, in the Latin, is formed and and fellow citizens are deputized to return an alleged fugitive slave to his enslavement, if you either cooperate with that or turn a blind eye and be and in, are indifferent well, it's constitutional. I can't do anything about that. Douglas would disagree with you, and he would give us a pretty uh, inflammatory. Uh, and brief speech later about those who would do that, he would basically say, you are cooperating with kidnappers.
0: And so he, he answers his own question along the lines that you're just saying, and I read here, what to the, the American slave is, the fourth, is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is, a, is the constant victim To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. That's because the people of the present in 1852, right before the Civil War, are not living up to the principles of the founders, and in some ways had even turned their backs on those principles, including, I would note, and say a little bit more about this including, he says, the American church.
1: Yeah, he got himself into uh, some trouble because he was not content. And he was fine in the North if he would condemn slaveholders, right? Because there are no slaveholders in the North, uh, except folks, of course, who own property down South where slavery took place. And, and in fact, well, we'll just leave it at that. Um, but... He, he w- was he got into trouble bec- precisely because he did not think that the american church north and south of the mason dixon line was doing enough to r- eradicate slavery from the country and so both political and cultural influences if you will for douglas in america he thought fell short of both what politically are highest ideals and in his reading our constitution spelled out all right in the preamble, the blessings of liberty it doesn't say anything about slavery in the preamble. Okay, so if you want our mission statement, it's the Declaration and transported into the Constitution via the preamble, but also the Bible, as he read it, uh, both Old and New Testament. He believed were emphatic uh, uh, renunciations of the institution of slavery and the church. He said uh, that that slavery couldn't exist an hour outside the church unless it was supported inside the church, which of course uh, it was. And he thought that the Northern church did not do enough uh, in sermons, raising money, and in action politically to uh, marshal their uh, uh, congregations on behalf of an interpretation uh, uh, and practice under the constitution that would eradicate slavery. And that, yeah, that got him into a lot of trouble
0: so he thought americans as citizens america was not living up to its own founding principles but the american church was not was not living up to the bible that's right yeah and when you say it got him in trouble
1: well um th- that made him an outcast in the eyes of polite society many in polite society uh, would have nothing to do with frederick Douglass and those in impolite society not only threw invectives and physical objects at him on certain occasions he actually got into fist fights at uh, speeches and on certain occasions not just he as a black man but white men like William Lloyd Garrison among others were uh, were also the, the potential victims of lynchings. I mean there were people who were out for literal blood uh, when it came to the slave question and again these are speeches that are taking place in New England, in New York, places that we would think where there would be universal acceptance and welcoming of these messages of liberation. Uh, but they, like, they drew out uh, the worst in some people, shall we say.
0: Sounds like it. I mean, so, so this speech in many ways does sound a lot like you said uh, William Lloyd Garrison would have sounded. It sounds like a praise of our Declaration of Independence and the founders who wrote those words, it sounds like a condemnation of the contemporary society for either embracing slavery or for turning their back on the slave and mm-hmm. not seeing the slave as a brother, not extending the Christian principles of love and treating one, and treating others like you wanna be treated. So not living up to the Bible. Those are also things William Lloyd Garrison would have said. But you said earlier that this speech announces Frederick Douglass's break with William Lloyd Garrison. Yeah, talk he, about that. Where does sure. it? Because so far it sounds like a Garrisonian speech. Now, but though you're saying there's a part of it that breaks from William Lloyd Garrison.
1: Well, what's emphatic for uh, Douglass? I would say two things, uh, and it's one has reference to what we've already mentioned, which is the character of the founders. While Garrison liked the founders expression of the noblest ideals of a political society, a civil society, which are spelled out in the Declaration, he condemned the founders for creating a constitution that that actually, in his mind, was pro-slavery. And so where you have this list of things that the founders did right, you would not see that in any Garrisonian editorial or speech. Douglas. You know, it, it, the, the first part of this speech is re- replete with those examples. If you get to the closing of this speech, Douglas is most explicit, he leaves it for the end, is most explicit about his break with Garrison. And he mentions men like William Goodell, Lysander Spooner, Samuel Sewell, uh, and then he says, not least by Garrett Smith who eventually becomes uh, an abolitionist congressman and a benefactor to his paper, the North Star, and which becomes Frederick Douglass's newspaper. He says, these gentlemen have, as I think fully and clearly, vindicated the constitution. They've defended it from any design to support slavery for an hour. And he goes on to say, you know, to to say that those of you who see that the constitution has a pro-slavery character, and of course, uh, that's William Lloyd Garrison, front and center. Right. Douglas disagrees. He says the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. If the Constitution were intended to be, by its framers and adopters, a slaveholding instrument, why neither slavery, slaveholding, nor slave can anywhere be found in it. And so Douglas, is, is, he learns by reading these guys and editing his own newspaper, he starts thinking more deeply about a constitution that has been leveraged by slaveholders on behalf of this nefarious anti-Republican institution, he starts doing some more thinking for himself and he concludes that no, this leans towards freedom. It is a document that never even mentions the word slave. In fact, everywhere people claim it protects slavery, gee, you know what word is used? Person, 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 wow. It seems to him that you have to work harder to make the Constitution a pro-slavery Constitution. The burden should be on them, not those of us who believe that small our republics are the people's things, and therefore all people should be protected by it.
0: And I'm reminded of that saying when he says this in the speech toward the end. Now, take the Constitution according to its plain reading. yes. And I defy the presentation of a single pro-slavery clause in it. On the other hand, it will be found to contain principles and purposes entirely hostile to the existence of slavery. Exactly. So he wants to say the Constitution isn't just neutral on slavery,
1: it's anti-slavery. Exactly. He, he sees the Constitution of a piece, part of the same fabric uh, woven from uh, the Declaration, which he says- uh, That in- seems,
0: Lucas, I'm sorry, but that seems very important.
1: For yeah, I mean,
0: and the American idea, he wants to say the American idea is not just articulated in the Declaration of Independence, but it's also put into practice in the Constitution. Explain yeah. that to us.
1: Well, um, in this sense, uh, although there are some differences with Abraham Lincoln, both Lincoln and Frederick Douglass believed that the ends or the purposes, the aims of the American regime, as spelled out in the declaration, find their practical security in a constitution, which was not our first constitution, the Articles of Confederation Perpetual Union, but the next one, the federal constitution drafted in 1787, ratified that in the following year. The U.S. constitution is the means to securing the end spelled out in the declaration.
0: So he thinks the principles of the declaration and its purposes are animating and giving life to the words and text of the Constitution. And so we should interpret the Constitution in a pro-freedom, anti-slavery way, wherever there's the benefit of the doubt, wherever there's any question, that's the plain reading of it. As you say, for example, the word, if it were supposed to be pro-slavery, it should use the word slave or slavery. And it never does. It always refers to persons, which talks about human beings. Exactly. Now, let me ask you this then. This reading of of the constitution as an anti-slavery document and this understanding of our american founders as pro-freedom men including freedom for all people um, it's a break with abolitionists it's clearly a break with some in the south um, who who want to claim the founders for slavery this view that Frederick Douglass, you say, articulates here really fully for the first time, this really important understanding of the American idea as together with the Declaration and Constitution pro-freedom. What significance does this have for the rest of the development of the American idea? What significance does this have for the Civil War, for Abraham Lincoln, and on? Because a lot of people today read Frederick Douglass, they read this speech, and they don't read those parts. They read his harsh condemnation of America, but they don't read the parts where he says, but there's nothing wrong with America's fundamental principles or documents.
1: Yeah, and I would say uh, that those who are looking for Douglas to condemn the United States, they are not as smart as Frederick Douglass. Now, that's probably true for most Americans, but I would say this. they have <laughs> Yeah, to, hardly they, anyone is. <laughs> yeah, they have to uh, slow down, read and contemplate the way Douglass did. He saw through, as it were, he saw the baby through the bathwater, as it were, he both saw our faults, but recognized how the country itself, we didn't have to look to any other place, any other document, if you will, to find the resources within our own past to bring about reform and true progress in the present. And in the same way, Douglas saw past the founder slaveholding, to the founders' ideals of freedom, self-government, and constitutionalism, and the rule of law. He saw those things and wasn't blinded by the obvious manifest ways we fell short. He was able to see the good amidst the bad and use that to marshal a pro-freedom, pro-liberation movement uh, in America the same way Lincoln saw it, the same way Later people, Susan B. Anthony, uh, Martin Luther King, most famously in the 20th century, and even today amidst our, as everybody says, our increasing polarisation, Douglas, we should imitate Douglas in finding those resources and reserves in America's founding, in its constitution, and especially its declaration, to help us regain a common language of rights, of equality, Uh, of consent and the rule of law, we can find those. We can find them in principle and in rhetoric in the past. And as King put it, right, that his dream was deeply rooted where? In the American dream. In speaking that way, King, like Lincoln, they were speaking like Frederick Douglass. Wonderful,
0: wonderful. The vindic- vindicating the American idea and saying, as Americans, we need to understand this American idea, and then we need to live up to it in our practice. But let's not abandon the American idea if we haven't always lived up to it in practice. Amen. Lucas, thank you so much for joining us. This has been just a wonderful insight into the remarkable mind and character of a great American. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of The American Idea, presented by the Ashbrook Center. You can find this episode and more of our resources for students, teachers, and citizens at our website, ashbrook.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe, like, rate, or review it. And of course, share it with your friends and family. From Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sikinga. Stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay connected with Ashbrook.